Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. On this broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Dwayne Baldwin, Professor of Urology, Director of Urologic Research, Program Director of Endourology Fellowship at Loma Linda University in California. His expertise and international recognition in the areas of stone surgery and radiation exposure make him a leading expert on these in this field. I am honored to have him as a guest today, and I also uh, cherish his friendship. Um, today, we'll be speaking about the evolution of PCNL, radiation therapy, and some lasers. Dwayne, welcome, and uh, again, I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, really appreciate our friendship. And I appreciate uh, this opportunity to have a little fireside chat with you. So I spoke to you the other day and uh, just kind of talking about topics and, and what we can talk about. And you mentioned that you started using a little bit more fluoro to obtain your PCNL access. I know you're a very large advocate of ultrasound uh, technology and minimization of radiation exposure. Maybe just talk to the audience about your evolution of how this occurred and maybe your decision-making of why over the years you may use a, a modality today that you didn't use yesterday and you might use a different one tomorrow. It's definitely been a journey for me. And, um, you know, I guess the whole process started out at Loma Linda. Um, we had a very strong radiology department and it was in fact so strong that the radiologist, um, you know, a radiologist was in charge of the hospital and um, we weren't allowed to have fluoroscopy in our clinics. There was a very strong uh, impetus to sort of keep us uh, from doing our own procedures in the operating room. So originally um, I used to do PCNLs uh, with the access placed by a radiologist, uh, you know, ahead of time. What ended up happening, this, the radiologist was very good, you know, extremely good at getting access. You know, we would communicate ahead of time. So, you know, there wasn't that misunderstanding about whether the tube was going to be in the upper pole or the lower pole. You know, we'd have that all planned out ahead of time. But then um, he, one day he was uh, working away in the IR suite and he finished up his case and it was time for him to drive home. And he went out to his car and he sat down and he couldn't remember how to get home. And he was um, he was kind of a family friend of ours. Um, his brother was in my class in high school, and uh, you know his his parents were friends with my parents. And he ended up taking him his <laughs> he went to the MRI suite and got an MRI of his brain, and lo and behold, he had a temporal lobe glioblastoma you know, went through aggressive treatment, you know, as a physician who has all the resources and knowledge, he researched everything and went to NIH and all, all over the place, getting the very best possible care. And tragically, he he passed away, leaving, you know, young children and and also leaving nobody to, to get my access for me. <laughs> so, so, um, so there was a need for me to get the access and just being fresh off of seeing this, this uh, vibrant, you know, young man pass away uh, with a, with a brain tumor, it sort of had a profound effect on me. And, and I realized that, 
I didn't want that to happen to me. I didn't want it to happen to my residents or or any of the patients. And so we kind of embarked on this journey. <laughs> Originally, we would have 20 minutes of fluoro time. I remember one, one case, um, we had 60 minutes of fluoro time trying to get the access in this, you know, 450 pound giant full staghorn. And so we had to come up with a different way to do it. There was a really slick ultrasound um, radiologist who was in our department at that time. We set out with this goal of we were going to go to zero fluoro. You know, he was really good. He would come into the operating room and uh, extremely skilled. We did a series of patients and, you know, we got I would say decently good at it. You know, we could get the access in. We would combine putting a scope up from below to sort of help us see in the kidney. Um, we could, that could sort of, we could make sometimes little minor needle adjustments with visual cues and things. And so, you know, we did a series of patients uh, with no fluoro whatsoever. And I felt kind of a little bit guilty because like, for example, I remember one patient um, who I looked carefully from above and I looked carefully from below. I thought I'd looked in every single calyx. And then lo and behold, on their post-operative CT scan, they had a one centimeter stone in a calyx that had been, must have been hidden by a clot or something. And I just couldn't see it. And I knew that if I had done a little bit of fluoro on that patient, I would have gotten that patient stone free. And then I didn't get that patient stone free because I didn't use a little bit of fluoro. And so, so then, you know, I, so I went from 20 minutes of fluoro <laughs> down to zero of <laughs> fluoro. And then now I've realized that I think there's a, a few things that fluoro does better than ultrasound. And there's several things that ultrasound does better than fluoro. And so I'd, I'd like to think that what I'm evolving to is a hybrid technique that's extremely low dose fluoro. Um, and ultrasound together using both for what they're both good at. And routinely my fluoro times will be less than 10 seconds. And I'll do one full dose fluoro at the end of the case, just to make sure I can leave some stone that I could see under fluoro and, and get out um, if, if I didn't take that look. And I'll just check the stent placement. And the other, the other thing uh, I've realized is with when, when you're using ultrasound, it's, it's, you can see the kidney usually pretty well, but for some reason, there's just, there are these patients and it's not necessarily the, the morbidly obese patients. It is certainly harder and the, the more obese they are, but there's some patients who even aren't that obese, like a man, maybe who's, who's um, BMI is maybe 30, 35, something like that, not that obese. And, uh, and for some reason, there's just, it's really hard to see the kidney, you know, it's just the fat around it is just so dense and the signal gets dampened out. You know, there's just these patients that, that uh, kind of are an, are an enigma, you know, it's, it's still a process. It's still a journey I'm on, I guess. And I'm sure. still, still evolving. When people talk about acquiring the skill of ultrasound guided PCNL, a lot of people recommend doing the hybrid approach at the beginning of your learning curve, just to kind of, improve your skills and get used to the ultrasound modality. It almost sounds like that that is almost at the, at least the middle or towards the end of your learning curve that now you are using a hybrid approach. Uh, which, which patients do you think, have you been able to identify a subset of patients who just absolutely need more fluoro and less ultrasound or vice versa, or is it a totally dependent upon what you're going to see at the time of imaging? 
I think male patients seems like they have denser fat surrounding the kidney sometimes. And it's, it's harder. Same way when you're doing a partial, how sometimes there's this, that stickier fat in men. I think it, maybe it's, it's more dense under ultrasound too, or something. So I think ultrasound seems like in, it's a little harder in men for some reason at the same BMI. Your point about the hybrid technique, I think that's a really good point. You know, and when I first started out trying to do ultrasound myself, that radiologist who I told you about, who was really good at doing ultrasound, of course, he left, like always happens when you got somebody who's really good on your team. And uh, so then, then, you know, I was trying to do ultrasound myself in the operating room and there's all these little things that can degrade your image. Like I used to use a sleeve over the ultrasound cover. And then there's the interface between the probe and the gel and the gel and the plastic and the plastic and the, and the drape of the patient and the patient, the drape of the patient and the skin, you know, so there's all these interfaces. And I realized that didn't work. And also I had a really bad little portable laptop computer or ultrasound that gave a really marginal image. And so I got a new ultrasound and then I used a sterile probe and I'm working out all these bugs, but, but still, you know, seeing the kidney is, has gotten pretty easy for me. And so now, you know, I, I feel quite confident at knowing where the kidney is, knowing where the lung is. I can have the patient, the anesthesiologist take deep breaths and I can map out exactly where the pleura is to know where the pleura is, know where the other organs are, know where the psoas muscles are. And then I can, I can have a safe, I narrow it down on ultrasound to like a little three centimeter, four centimeter area where I know is my safe, my sweet, sweet spot. But then I bring the fluoro in and I line it up using fluoro. And I think, I think this is an important thing that, that maybe not fully realized. So the problem when you use ultrasound, you want to see the needle going in. It's really hard to see the needle. The needle doesn't show up very well. And in fact, the only way sometimes you can kind of see it is is by moving the needle, you see the motion or taking the stylet out and moving it back and forth. It creates this acoustic reverberation that you can help see it. But, you know, in order to do that, you have to be at one end of the probe or at the other end of the probe to have it be in plane so that you can watch it go in. The problem is um, um, that probe, if you put it on the patient in a window where you can see, which has to be between the ribs, you're either going to be too medial or too lateral because where you want it to be is right in the middle of the probe, you know, right in the center, what you're looking at. So then the other, the only other option is to bring the needle in from out of plane and then you can't watch it come in and then you just sort of have to target with a, a point in space. And that's, that's way more challenging. So I do probably 70% of my punctures are upper pole. Uh, you know, we have a pretty high volume and I, I still just do upper pole because of the anatomy. And I think it just, at least in my hands, it, it gives me, it, it affords me the ability for much higher stone clearance. The, the problem with ultrasound that I have for upper pole is that, you know, it, it might be above the 12th. In rare cases, it might be above the 11th, but I've already checked the windows on CT. I know I'm clear. I know I have, have uh, you know, a very good window without uh, plural space violation. What are the tips and tricks of trying to, you know, get up to that upper pole? Because that's where I really struggle on ultrasound is getting routine upper pole, especially on, you know, obese males and so on. Yeah, no, I think, I think you've, you've hit the, the nail on the head. Like I've noticed that the guys who are doing pure ultrasound, they tend to do much more mid pole and lower pole. I'm in your camp on this. Uh, I, I agree. I love the upper pole and I do seems like probably 70% uh, upper pole access. 
And I think it really does for these big, complicated stones. It really does give you a great, a great approach. I think you get a better stone free rate. The challenge, as you point out, is that rib is right in your way and you can't, ultrasound does not see through the rib. So it creates this big, huge black thing that blocks out everything behind it. So then you have to turn your probe so that it's between the ribs in order to allow you to see. And then that's not the plane that you want to use to get your access. And therein, that's what makes it ultrasound so hard, you know, when you're doing upper pull. So as our techniques are evolving and as we're, as everyone is adapting, I think the, we should keep in mind the goal is, you know, as low as reasonably achievable, you know, we say Alara. Um, and what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean it has to be zero. You know, I think, I think we can, we can do lots of things to reduce our radiation exposure that, that um, don't require us to switch to 100% ultrasound. And I think, I think using a little bit of fluoro, in my experience, I think is safer and gives a better outcome, higher stone free rate. So you mentioned Alara, so I'm gonna kind of pick a, a dovetail on that a little bit. Uh, you are, I've heard you speak on radiation exposure and I've seen your publications and I mean, you really are an authority on this. Just tell the audience some of your ways to really reduce uh, like a continuous versus pulse, moving their C-arm closer to the skin or further away from the skin. I mean, what what are just some of the routine kind of um, uh, basic skills that we can have to minimize our radiation exposure to the uh, OR staff and to ourselves? That's probably super important. I appreciate you asking that. There's just a couple things that someone could do that would really just dramatically reduce things. Most modern C-arms will have a little button that says low dose. And if you just push that, that one low dose button, it cuts the dose of radiation about 50%. But if you combine that with one pulse per second, so when you turn the machine on, it comes in at 30 frames per second. Well, your eye can only see 15. So half of those are completely unnecessary. You know, if, if you think about it, every, every second, 30 X-ray exposures are occurring from the machine. Your eye only sees 15. And I always turn the machine to one pulse per second. Um, and the conventional IIC arm, you can do that. You can turn it down to one pulse per second. And the combination of one pulse per second and the low dose button being pushed, that cuts your radiation dose by 90%. Just those two things. It's so simple. And the picture's a little bit grainy. And every once in a while, you might need to, I, I said earlier, I, I do use full dose um, sometimes, but uh, just probably at the end of the case to make sure there's not any little subtle residual stones. But there are several other things. You know, I have a designated C-arm tech who, who knows exactly what we're doing, who's always turning the machine off when we're not using it. He has a little key, just turns it off so someone doesn't accidentally step on it and radiate themselves. Um, he keeps track of all our times for us and lets us know if we're, we're going above our desired goals or getting anywhere close. We always collimate the C-arm down to the very smallest region possible. Like you pointed out, we keep the, the C-arm as far away from the patient, the source, the radiation comes from below the patient. I keep it as far away from the patient as possible. And that cuts the patient's dose and your dose because there's much less scatter back down to your legs, which aren't shielded. Um, so that's pretty easy to do. And then wearing the protection, you know, it's heavy and you think, oh, I don't know if I want to wear it. And, and it's interesting because I still, I get asked to review articles from different parts of the world. And surprisingly, there's people who are still, you know, in Europe, 50% people are not wearing thyroid shields and several percent of people are not even wearing any lead at all. 
And it's just kind of hard to imagine here, you know, in California where, you know, our, our uh, we'd get arrested if we went in without our, without our lead on. Quick know. comment on lead line glasses. Uh, I, I have a pair and they, they do really, really well in my drawer and I just forget to bring them and I don't use them. And uh, they are heavy and they are, uh, you know, your vision, your vision changes. And so you have to get them redone. And, and what, what's the, you know, we published an article on the uh, radiation exposure to the eye and, and looking at that, um, the cataract formation thresholds. And, you know, we calculated that you need something on the order of 10 or 11,000 PCNLs to even approach, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the recommended dose for uh, cataract formation. I have mixed feelings just based on that, just one limited article, but talk to the audience about the lead line glasses. I get asked that all the time. It's interesting. I have the very same scenario you have. Uh, I have these beautiful lead line glasses and they're kind of heavy. My prescription changed and I haven't gotten a new pair yet. So I don't always wear them and I feel bad about that. So wearing the lead glasses does cut the dose to the eye. We measured it and it's about 50% reduction. I've seen studies both ways. Your study um, showing, you know, 10,000 PCNLs. I also saw a study of interventional cardiologists and probably they, they may have more radiation exposure than us in urology even. The incidence was, you know, 60% of interventional radiologists had at least, you know, the early formings of cataracts. And this was much higher than the 9% age-matched controls that they did. You know, this is with slit lamp exams. I guess uh, the reality is people get cataracts just from the radiation from the sun, you know, so if you're already getting a lot of sun, if you go to the beach a lot, or you have a boat and you sail a lot or, or whatever it is, uh, you ski a lot, um, you, you can get a lot of radiation just from the sun. So I'd, I'd probably encourage wearing lead line glasses, but, uh, but they are heavy. And, you know, I think even better than wearing lead line glasses is cutting the dose way down so that there's just such a little amount getting up to your eyes that it's not a problem. Great. That's a great, great talk. It's a very valuable information for folks. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and maybe we can kind of close out uh, on a little bit of this. This might take a couple minutes, but that's fine. I want to, uh, your lab and, and, and yourself clinically have, have really done a lot of work with both the thulium laser fiber and the holmium laser for stone disease specifically. I, maybe just go through what your thoughts are on using either or neither of these uh, during PCNLs. And maybe what your experience is uh, ureteroscopically, kind of talk to the audience about maybe the, the pluses and minuses of each, each laser fiber uh, in, in their everyday use. Because we, we have the thulium, we have the Moses, and we have a low dose. I have uh, all three available to me in, in two different hospitals. And so um, it is kind of a, you know, boy, which one do I pick today? And which one's available today? And, you know, how do I adjust to you know, whatever laser they happen to roll in the room is probably what I'm more a victim of usually. Um, but, you know, you have to kind of be well-versed in all three of these, how to use them, what settings to use. Maybe just talk a little bit, maybe a, a shorter commentary on, on whether you use them in perks and which one you choose, and maybe a little bit longer discussion on, on just kind of their general utility for uh, stone disease in general. During perks, um, I, I use lasers uh, fairly fairly frequently. And uh, I don't use it for stones that I can get the rigid scope to, you know, I use the ultrasonic lithotripter to break up the stones and suck them out. I think that's still faster than the laser. 
which breaks it up, but you know, you still got the pieces there and you got to get rid of them. Um, but I do, um, I use the lasers uh, frequently. We're one of the first four sites in the US to get the thulium laser. And so we had the thulium laser and did some of the initial tests on it. We actually did a bunch of, bunch of benchtop tests on it. We were extremely impressed, but as I've used it more and more, I'm also learning that um, there's some times when I, when I might not choose to use it. So I guess I'd say that I've, I'm, uh, for your readeroscopy, going to the second part of your question, um, when, uh, when, when the first times I did a case with the thulium, uh, it was, a, it was in a perk and, um, uh, there was, there was a dense renal pelvic stone, you know, full staghorn. We were trying to get an upper pole access cause it was a full staghorn and, you know, we could not, I usually like to get a scope by the stone up into the calyx and we just could not get it by. So I put a ureteral access sheath in. I thought, oh my goodness, this is going to take me two hours to get through this renal pelvis and up into this upper pole. And, and it was a calcium oxide monohydrate stone, you know, one of those black smooth ones that, you know, you know, just looked, made your heart sink. And, and I turned on that thulium laser and it was just in 15 minutes, I took care of the renal pelvis, upper pole and fundibulum and got into the upper pole so we could drop a, a needle in. And it was just like the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is revolutionary. And it is, it, I've learned now it's super good for uh, the thulium is amazing for calcium oxalate monohydrate. You know, it, it's clean. It doesn't result in fragments. You can vaporize if you get your settings right. It'll just vaporize. The stone just ceases to exist. It's super clean. There's no debris. You can see beautifully. You almost don't need any irrigation, which is one of the risks. You you Because there is a little higher temperature. We've shown that the thulium does run just slightly hotter. And so you, you can't be lulled into the using irrigation because you can see really well with it because you might get some, some heat thermal injury. The other thing I've learned with the thulium is there's a couple places where it doesn't work super well. And one is a matrix stone. And I'm not sure, you know, even holmium doesn't work super well on a matrix stone, but I think the thulium works even less well on a matrix stone. And then the other place I'm, I'm a little leery of it is like for a tightly impacted ureteral stone. One of those ones where it has tissue ingrowth and you can't really separate the tissue from the stone. And the very principles that make the thulium really slick, uh, the fact that there's no stone bouncing around, you know, less, less uh, bouncing. I think that's a bad thing when you have an uh, ingrowth because you would like the stone pieces to bounce away from the mucosa so that you can see what's the tissue and what's the stone. And if they don't bounce away, everything just turns white and you can't tell what's stone and what's tissue and, and makes it kind of hard. So I guess, I guess those are a couple little, little sort of uh, experiences I've had with the thulium. One thing we've learned is that you really need to try to play with the settings a lot because the, like you said, the softer stones, I think we end up observing that the stones just burn, you know, they, they, they turn, they turn black, they char a little bit. They're not really fragmenting or, or chipping away. And, at that point, you really have to just play with the settings. I mean, it might be or just a really super high frequency, or it might just be a really high energy. I mean, you kind of have to pick and choose what you, and you might be changing the settings multiple times during your case. That's at least been our experience. And so getting these established settings that are defaulted on there sometimes are not always appropriate for the type of stone that you're managing. 
Definitely. I think that's a good point. And different parts of the stone have different densities. And so we're constantly changing our settings up and down and trying to optimize it as we get to different parts of the stone. I think that's a, a good point to, to bring up for sure. Great discussion, Dwayne. I, we could have, do this for a couple hours, I'm sure. Your, uh, your knowledge base is, is fantastic. Your experience is wonderful. I want to thank you very much for joining us today and uh, sharing your, your knowledge with the uh, audience. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Brad. It's been a pleasure. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast.